Um, first, I want to say this to the kids that are here. Usually, I will have the kids come up and do a kid's story. Today, here's what I have for you. Within the sermon, there is a kid's story. It's about a family in our church. And so, kids, I want you to listen for that story because they had an experience in a grocery store that we are going to talk about today. All right. Um, we are doing some scripture memory. So could we stand to our feet? We have been doing uh, first or Second Peter chapter one, verses three through eleven, and we're we're not that far into it, but I want us to do verses three and four. Okay, we always start with His divine power. So seeing that His, the seeing that for the second service can be ours. So we're going to start with His divine power. Say this with me. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by loss. Okay, stop, stop. We're just going to do, we're going to do that much. Okay, get rid of this. Get rid of this. Okay, here we go. Here we go, folks. Now listen, if you feel like, oh boy, I just don't feel like I can do this. Listen, we've got cards on all of the giving tables. Grab them. It's got 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11, so that you, and it's got the whole thing there so that you can carry it around with you. I've got mine right here. Um, You can carry it around with you and during the day you could take it out. There's also a a scripture memory app. You've got to be one of those technology people to do that. Um, Here we go. His divine power has granted to us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Here we go. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Woo! All right. All right, so we're doing it again, except this time you don't have to do it. We're going to do the whole passage this time. Here we go. Can we have it back up here? His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge, this is really important because today's on true knowledge. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, his own glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, 
supply or add moral excellence, or we saw last year, virtue. Add virtue to faith. And add to your virtue or moral excellence, knowledge. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Lord, you have a word today to speak to us. It is for us, but it is, it is a word for America and for where we are right now in, a land, in the land of lots of information and very little truth. Lord, make us lovers of truth, we pray. Help us, Holy Spirit, in this time we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. So we are in a series called Transformed Lives. The first week we talked about the promises. This is why we're spending so much time. It's a 10-week series on this passage. There are promises that if these qualities that we're going to go over are ours in an increasing measure, the, the mother load of promises are ours. One, we will have a fruitful life here. We will not be unproductive in our faith. Two, we will grow in the assurance of our calling and will never fall away. We will never stumble. That, that the, the vulnerability of this life, if we will make sure these qualities are ours and increasing, confidence in our faith will only grow. We will not stumble. We will not fall away. And then thirdly, you will receive a rich welcome into heaven. You won't just slip in. You, you, there will be a, a excitement because it will, it will become everything that you lived for. And that welcome of, of, of eternity is it's the greatest thing that we could ever imagine. So that was the first week we talked about the promises, why we're doing this series, why we are focusing on transformed lives. Second week, we did uh, foundation. The foundation that God has given us is entirely his doing. It's, it's all his grace. It's all his gift. What he has given us in Jesus Christ actually has to be obtained. It can't be obtained by works. In fact, part of what God does is he has to remove the foundation we've laid of human righteousness, human goodness, human religion, human anything. That foundation is a faulty foundation. It's got a crack in it. It will never lead you to assurance and fruitfulness. So he has to remove that one and lay the foundation of this gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Jesus and what he's done by pure grace is the foundation, and we lay hold of this by faith. It's ours for free. We lay hold of it by, 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 uh, through grace, by, or by grace through faith. And then we talked about the first floor. That these floors, as God is building a character, they are actually in order, which is why each of them are listed twice. It is cumulative. You do not put on your faith knowledge. You put on your faith virtue. That's what we did. That's the first floor of God's building. Virtue, Christianity is not supposed to make you smart. It's supposed to make you good. It does make you smart, but... but 
It makes you good first. The goal of this commandment is going to be love, which we're going to eventually get to, but it springs out of a pure heart and a clean conscience. Virtue is the first floor, a commitment to do what's right, no matter what the cost. Even if I die, I no longer have to do whatever I can do to live because I have eternal life. I can now just live to do what's right. In a corrupt world, I can live to do what is Right, and it, it sticks out in this world. That's the first floor, is virtue. And then the second floor, add to your virtue knowledge. And I have t- titled the message, True Knowledge. Because the, the NASB, New, New American Standard, which we are um, going out of, and this is part of the reason why we are going through using that translation, is it says that we become partakers. God has given us these promises by his power and, and through the true knowledge of him, through the true knowledge of him, we become partakers of the divine nature. And many of the translation just says through the knowledge of him, but it doesn't make the, it doesn't give what the Greek is. The Greek word for knowledge there, the true knowledge, through the true knowledge of him who has called us, is uh, the word epignosis. There'll be a quiz on that later, kids. Um, and it means full or true versus uh, this other knowledge that's just gnosis. Epignosis is E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S. And gnosis, which is used to add to your virtue, gnosis, is just G-N-O-S-I-S. Knowledge apart from virtue is not truth. This is why Peter's writing the letter. Because there's all these false teachers and these false prophets that are, are promoting a knowledge about God that sounds really good and they've got all kinds of facts, but it doesn't touch the, the corrupt nature. They've left, they've left greed and immorality in place and they are promoting this as a gospel of freedom. And Peter is saying, no, no, no. You can't, you, knowledge apart from virtue is not truth. <clears throat> You can have facts about God, but when they are disconnected from virtue, which is the root of God's character or his holiness, they aren't truth and can deceive people. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and in so doing, have departed from the faith. There is so-called knowledge that you can have that actually leads you away from God because it's not true. You can have facts that aren't true. Okay, how does this work? Well, let's, let's look at Romans 1, 9, 19 through 22, and we'll talk about America today. 
Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So that people are without excuse, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. (laughs) So God is speaking through all of creation. And, and, And God's beauty, God's design, God's wisdom, God's life, it's it's all there for anybody to see. But here's what we've learned in America: you can have all kinds of facts about geography and about physics and if you disconnect them from God you end up darkening your heart you can have this really sharp mind and this really really quote smart and get all kinds of degrees but if you can't see that God has made these things if you can't see the beauty of God if you can't see the one that has revealed himself in creation it's because you've got a darkened heart Amen. we have biologists one of the loudest voices for, for uh, atheism is Richard Dawkins, biologist from Oxford, and he has to say this to his biology students. This is in his book, The Blind Watchmaker. He said, as you work on your stuff, as you dissect, you, everything that you see is going to scream to you, design, 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 and you have to remember. The burden's on you to remember. None of this was designed. This all came about by a random process. I mean, you have to work. You have to work at not seeing God in all that is around us. You can learn all kinds of facts about history. But until you see that history is his story, until you see it through the lens of the fall, the the, the lens of what sin has done, the lens of redemption, you're going to have all kinds of facts. You can be a buff on all kinds of stuff. We have a game that's very famous in our country right now. It's just, it's so right that this is our famous game right now. It's called Trivial Pursuit, where you can be very smart and you you can just buzz through Jeopardy when they do all the questions in Jeopardy. You can be smart, but not wise. Because if you can't see God, if you can't discern God, who is the author of all these things, you you take facts and you cut them off from their root. Every fact, all knowledge, is rooted in the creator that made it. And when you cut facts from God, you're going to end up with something called false knowledge. This false knowledge puffs us up. Knowledge apart from virtue puffs us up. Look at 1 Corinthians 8, 2 and 3. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. The word knowledge there is gnosis. Not not the full knowledge, just, just regular knowledge. Without love, which is virtue, it's going to puff you up. Those who think... They know something, do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. 
Here's what my commentary said. What Paul is talking about here is presumptuous knowledge, arrogant knowledge, conceited knowledge. He is saying, he is saying that a person who presumes to have knowledge isn't likely to have it at least not to the extent that he needs it. His assumption that he knows the facts makes him unwilling to learn anything further. His bit of knowledge, therefore, becomes a barrier to true knowledge. So it's very interesting why people believed the world was flat for so long. This is uh, from a book called The Discoverer's by Daniel Borston. Here's what he says. The greatest obstacle to discovering the shape of the earth, the continents, and the ocean was not ignorance, but the illusion of knowledge. People knew that the world was flat and couldn't abide those who said otherwise. Nothing can set back learning as much as the presumption of knowledge. So as I've been in ministry, I've learned more and more about something that's, it's not just out there, it's in every single one of us. It's called confirmation bias. It simply means this. You are biased towards what you already believe. And we tend to stop believing what we read. And we tend to read what we already believe. And our knowledge prevents us from getting anything more because we think we know it all. And, and so what you think you know becomes a barrier for, for you and me to grow. And so we have to be like children. We have to be teachable. The beginning of wisdom is humility that says, I need wisdom. God, speak to me. I have learned over many years, the limitations of apologetics. Apologetics is simply this, giving a rational reason for your faith. Answering the hard questions, the difficult questions, um, helping people get the rationale. Here, and, and what it assumes, and here's why apologetics is limited. I, I love apologetics. My oh my. We have, we've added as one of our basic courses, we do... Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, major church doctrines, and now we've added apologetics. Lisa Quintana and I do one semester on apologetics. I believe in them. I love them. I love to think about things. Uh, God's things do not contradict our mind. They transcend our mind, but they don't contradict it. And there are really good answers for a lot of stuff. But here's here's why it's so limited. The problem that the unbeliever has, he thinks it's intellectual, but it's actually moral. Let let me read to you 2 Timothy 2. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So usually in apologetics, you're talking to people that don't even believe there is a devil. You're talking to people that don't really acknowledge a spiritual realm. And so the the issue they think is intellectual, that if I had enough proof, if do a sign in front of me and then I will believe that it's, it's not what it appears. And so I used to get all worked up when I couldn't 
convince people and have argues. I'd get angry and I'd get upset and I'd, I'd just like, why can't you? And, and now it's like, oh, oh no, 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 no. I, I learned this. The way you talk to people is more important than actually what you say. <laughs> be patient, be gentle. It, it clearly says don't be intimidated because you're still supposed to answer them. You're still supposed to give a response. So don't be intimidated like I can't speak and I can't say anything and because I have to apologize for even having a view. No, no. No, God's, God's made you a light. But it's about character before it is about information. Be gentle, be patient, be kind, and be prayerful. Because unless God grants them repentance, they're not going to come to the knowledge of the truth. The the bottom of this thing is a moral distance from God, not an intellectual distance from God. There's actually plenty to convince people that there's a God. So I have got uh, a neighbor that I just love this guy. I love his family, and um, I knew he had some extra time this week, so I asked if I could uh, meet with him. And I said, I've got some questions about your spiritual life. Would you be willing to meet? He said, yeah, let's do it. And so we sat down and um, no church background at all. And didn't know if there even was a heaven, but if there was, and if it was based on being good to people, he thought he'd probably go, but if it had anything to do with worshiping a divine being, he didn't think he'd go because he doesn't do that, because da-da-da-da-da, and he made it clear. Jesus, we believe Jesus was just a man. A really, really good man. And um, that's and, and it should be an example for, for all of us. And I, I would say this is probably what most people in America actually believe. And so we talked about that. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to give apologetics and that you, you don't get to say Jesus was just a man. That's not logically one of your alternatives. Jesus claimed to be God in several different places. So he's got to either be, and I said, like C.S. Lewis said, he has to be either liar, lunatic, or Lord. You don't get good man because good men don't go around saying they're God. And so we talked about that and, and then I share the bridge with him of of what the problem is and how the separation came and we get to the end and, you know, are you the guy that's saying glory? Are you the guy at the door? Are you the guy that's saying bah and doesn't want it? And he said, I'm right between the guy that, that I'm not the guy that says bah, but I'm not at the door yet either. I'm, I'm right in between. And um, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm open. I'm open to learning. And so um, I gave him uh, the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, which he's, he said he was excited about reading but I'm not all worked up about it. I'm praying for him. I'm praying for him. He needs something that I can't do for him. He needs something that only, only God can do for him. They're, they're going to they're gonna try out City Church on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Could we try to be at our best? Step it up, people. All right. <laughs> Point two is true knowledge. First, the value of the knowledge of God. This is Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. My son, 
If you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. True knowledge, the beginning of true knowledge and the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You need to start by understanding this. There's a lot of information in our society that's not the true knowledge of God. The true knowledge of God is hidden in God and it must be valued. It must be sought after. Do you see that if we think we know everything that we're never going to look for more? This, this is very rare. The true knowledge of God is very rare. And it must be valued. It must be valued and eagerly sought and asked for. Because the truth is, you only get this knowledge if God gives it to you. It, no one figures this out for himself. Peter, he doesn't say to Peter, uh, when, G, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son, he doesn't say, Peter, you are clever. I did not expect you to figure this out. He says, you are blessed. You didn't, flesh and blood didn't show you this. This was revealed by the Father. This is why the greatest prayer you can pray is, God, open up the eyes of my heart. Open up, before you read your Bible, God, show me what you want to say. Show me what is beyond what I currently know. Speak to me, God. Reveal yourself to me. It's very precious. In a land of much, much overwhelming information, there's very little true knowledge that's based on intimacy with God. Secondly, true knowledge is found in Christ. Colossians 2, 3. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures and of wisdom and knowledge. Ultimate truth is a person, not a, a fact. Jesus said, I am the truth. All, there's no one smarter than Jesus. He's got all understanding. He's got all knowledge. But it is hidden in him. You're never going to come, you're going to have facts without knowledge if you don't come through Christ. Jesus is the one that reveals true knowledge, true intimacy. He'll give you the true understanding of facts, of both biological, physiological, historical facts. Everything, all true knowledge comes in Christ, but it's all hidden in Christ. We find it in our relationship with him as we pursue him. William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury back in the 1940s, said this about secular education. He said, what secular education does for you is it takes you out of your small little world and it puts you on a tower where you get a much bigger perspective. It's a a liberal arts education. It gives you a picture of the whole world. It gives you a bigger perspective of what's out there and other cultures and other peoples and it, it, it helps you see how big the world is. 
But he said its limitation is this. Secular education leaves you at the middle. And truth has Jesus at the middle. Education that leaves you at the middle is going to be skewed. There's a way which seems right to man. And the end of that way is death. It leaves you with truth being your opinion, your perspective. No, 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 no. Truth starts with Jesus and his perspective. Truth starts with the word of God. Our minds actually have to be renewed. So there's nothing wrong with secular education or getting degrees out there. My, oh my, I've got a degree from the UW-Madison in business. There's nothing wrong with it. But if you're gonna if you're gonna walk in, in truth, you gotta recognize secular education leaves you in the middle, and that's a huge problem. We need to put Jesus in the middle of all true education. That's the only eyes that we can trust to see through is his eyes. True knowledge. All right. Point three, last point. Knowledge that transforms. Knowledge that transforms us. His great and magnificent promises. How do the promises work? God has given us his precious and magnificent promises. How do promises work? Here, here, it's really important before you approach a promise that you understand how they work. Okay, so first, it's not about what you deserve. What you deserve is justice. You got to trust me on this. You don't want justice. You do not want justice from God. I'll just, I'll just take my chances. Let me tell you what your chances are. Zero. We're, God's way holier than we think he is. We're way more unholy than we think. I was telling my neighbor, because my neighbor is a great guy. He's just a great guy. And, I'm, you know, I show the good works and the religion and the morality. And, um, and here's God's holiness over here. And I say, the, the problem, of course, the way, the way we, get, we deceive ourselves is we spend a lot of time comparing ourselves to each other. And, and, and I'm no worse than the next guy. And I, I haven't raped anybody. I haven't murdered anybody. I, I'm not in the paper for stealing anything. I must be a good guy. That's a, that's a problem. Because God says that even your righteous deeds are tainted. They're like filthy rags to me. God is holier beyond our reason. And the wages of sin before that holy God is death. If you get wages, wages is what you deserve. If you and I get what we deserve... We will all die, and not just physically, but we will be separated from God for eternity. That's how justice works. So if we're going to approach God, we got to come through promises. Promises are not about what we deserve. And here's the second thing promises are not about. Promises are not about what you think you need. Here's what I need And so I'm going to ask God to give me what I need. It's not what you need. It's what you think you need. And this is how most people take so, get so little from God. The promises are not about what you think you need. The promises are about what God wants to give. Because what God wants to give us is so far beyond what you think you need. You see, when God thinks about you, he doesn't just think about you. 
He thinks about all the people around you. You need way more than you think you need because he wants you to have enough. So you overflow to all the people around you. This is how promises work. It's not about justice. It's not about what you think you need. It's about what God wants to give. We were, a few summers ago, we had car, our van kept breaking down and I was just so sick of it. And I, we, I almost bought a new one with a loan. And, and, and then I, I came to my senses and I'm like, you know what? Our vehicles are fine. We don't, we don't need a new vehicle. I've been in the third world. Trust me. We do not need a new vehicle. And so we can make this work. Um, but I was going through the series on Matthew and I'm talking about prayer and asking and just go ahead and ask and ask his favorite children. So I asked God for a, a, a new car. And, uh, and, particularly struck by you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give good things to those who ask him? This was a thing. So we get, this is in July, I prayed, I didn't think about it that much, just had a prayer, left it, we're fine. Um, Get a call mid-August, and it's Alice's dad. And he says this, do you guys need a car? And we're just, we had actually just been talking about that, kind of. He said, we got a car for you. He said, we just, we don't want to have our second car. We want to give you this car. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, that sounds great. That's amazing. Well, when they came down to give it to us, her dad's name is Dale. Dale was so filled with joy because he wanted us to have this car. The idea that we would pay him something would just ruin it. He wanted to give us this car and he was more excited about giving it to us than I was about getting it. If you can believe that because I saw it as God's provision. I saw it as an answer to prayer. But It was completely unexpected that he would have so much joy in giving it. And then, boom, I saw it. Oh, my. This is how the father feels. This is how the father feels. He's got so much for us. And here we are taking care of ourselves and just trying to... and, 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 And he will just pull back. And he's got so much for us if we would allow him to give what he wants to give. All right. Kids, are you ready for the story? (laughs) Whoa, that was just such a great response. All right. Here's the story. Here is the story. It's about a family in our church. I have received permission to share this. Dad's name is Mike. And this is about their shopping trip to Metro Market. They're going to Metro Market and they've got another family with them and so he, he's shopping with this other dad and they're shopping together and they're kind of chatting and kind of mindlessly taking things off the shelf like men do. And, um, and his son says, um, Daddy, I stole your phone. And he looks at the phone and he says, where'd you get that? He says, on the shopping cart. He says, 
puts it in his pocket. Because he's, he's talking. He's in the middle of talking. He doesn't think a thing about it until he gets home. And he reaches to get that phone, and there's two phones in there. And, and even then, it, it's not alarming to him because he could easily have his wife's phone. His son could have picked up his wife's phone somehow. And, and so, but then his wife says, uh, Honey, where'd you get this phone? I've got my phone. You guys have stolen a phone from Metro Market. His, the son stole it, but Mike is now an accomplice to the crime. And so, so he's like, okay, all right, we, we, need, to, we need to get this back. And so he's in, in motion to take this thing back. And this text is received by him. Here's the text. I want to read it to you. If you have me, please return me to the Metro Market on Cottage Grove Road immediately. I belong to one of the managers. If we need to, we have video surveillance we can look at to find out who you are. If you return the phone quickly, we will have a reward for you. No questions asked. This is a limited time offer. (laughs) Please call or text when you're on your way. So Mike goes in there and says he has this phone. Well, it turns out it's not just the manager. It's the head manager. And Mike is ready with all of these to explain what happened. And the manager's like, no, no, no. No questions asked. Now, now it's, it's reward time. And, uh, and Mike, but Mike can't let go of it. And he's like, I, you know, I was, we, we don't live far from Metro Market. And as soon as I got your text, I was, he says, I, we knew where you live. He's, the, the manager says, we pinged you. He didn't, Mike didn't even know what pinged meant, but he knew exactly where he was. Full surveillance. And uh, he says, no question is asked. Now it's reward time. What would you like? And he gives this long list of things. Just choose. Take, whatever, t- take whichever ones you want. And so Mike's like, uh, well, maybe some gelato. And he's like, well, how many people do you have? And there, there were seven because of this other family. And he's like, well, let's just go fill up tubs of gelato. And so they fill up all these tubs. And then he's just like, do you want anything else? And Mike's like, feeling horrible that he's getting this much. And he's like, oh, no, no, this is, this is so generous. This is so thankful. And so he brings it all back and they're all eating gelato. And his son says, maybe we should steal more phones. Uh, So he sent me an email. He said, the more and more I reflected on this simple little incident, I'm amazed at all the spiritual lessons that God had for me. I'm now convinced this whole thing was no accident. This was somehow orchestrated by God to show me more about myself and more about him. Number one, 
What a perfect example of God's grace. I steal the manager's phone and he gives me ice cream. There was nothing I did to deserve that gelato. In fact, you would expect the manager to be mad or at least annoyed. Instead, I received blessings. Do you ever think that God is annoyed with you or chronically mad at you? Does your view of God keep you from a deeper intimacy with him? The truth is, when you come to God, he's even more happy to see you than that manager was to see me. Number two, there was a reward waiting for me at the store And it didn't cost me anything except for a little humility. All I had to do was show up and receive it. How many of us are waiting at home? God has wonderful things in store for me, and sometimes I miss out because I simply will not go to him. Three, the manager knew where I lived. I couldn't hide from the manager, and I wasn't going to get away with anything. He didn't hunt me down, though he could easily have. There are no secrets from God either. For better or for worse, he's got you on GPS. (laughs) Number four, the manager sent me an invitation. The ball was in my court, and it was up to me to respond. Jesus stands and knocks on the door of my heart. He has sent me an invitation as well, an invitation to live life abundantly. Number five, not going back to the store would would not have ended very well for me. It wouldn't work to ignore the manager. Likewise, it ultimately doesn't work to ignore God either. Number six, I felt an inherent need to explain myself to the manager. I felt like I needed to provide him with an explanation for what happened. It was clear after a few moments, however, that he really didn't care about any of that. All he cared about was that I came back. He really meant what he said in the text, no questions asked. God knows that we sin and that we make mistakes. He's not interested in our excuses or our justifications. All he wants is for us to just come back to him. No questions asked. Number seven, the most fascinating part of this was my own internal reaction to the manager asking me what he could do for me. Immediately, my thoughts were rapid fire. Absolutely not. How would that be fair? I don't deserve this. He doesn't owe me anything, etc. After turning him down initially, I could tell after he offered again that he truly wanted to give me stuff. Even then, it was difficult for me to finally say yes. Sometimes it's hard to receive gifts when I feel I haven't earned them. Sometimes I even say no to things that are offered, even if I really want them. Maybe because of pride or maybe because I assume the person making the offer feels obligated to be nice. God's grace is hard for me to comprehend because it's freely given and not earned. I repeatedly need to be reminded that God genuinely wants to be gracious and merciful to me. And number eight, as I think back to when the manager was in the midst of dishing up the gelato, I remember feeling very awkward. He asked me what size container I wanted. When I said maybe just one of the large containers, he filled it up and proceeded to ask me what other flavors I wanted. This continued until he was filling up a third large container, at which point I told him to please make it the last one. I have wondered, though, how much he would have continued to give me. I'm guessing he would have given me smoothies, pizza, bakery items, and anything else I would have requested. How much more does God desire to give me? Good gifts.
promises. His precious and magnificent promises. This is what leads to a transformed life. And secondly, the divine nature. It says that we become, through the promises, partakers of the divine nature. And then listen to this. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Here's what happens when you and I become born again. John says it this way. This is 1 John 5, 3 and and 4. I don't think we have it. Um, It says that his commandments are not burdensome to us because whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Listen to 1 John chapter 3. Uh, five, ver, ver, or ver, yeah, chapter three, verse nine. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Here's what happens when you get born again. You get a new nature and your new nature's natural habitat is obedience. Obedience is not hard anymore. Obedience is actually easier than disobedience. The the world can be righteous, but it's a horrible burden to them. They can't be it for long because it's pressure and it's hard and you got to keep that mask up of I'm righteous, I'm righteous, I'm doing but but inside wanting to do the other thing, wanting to give in to that lust. The 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 divine nature in us immediately changes our natural habitat to obedience. When, you, when a Christians are obedient, they are like a fish in water. They're just, it's natural to them. Obedience is natural. It's, it's what fills your spirit. It's what, it, the God's presence is with you. It's in agreement with his nature. When you and I disobey, we're like a fish out of water. We're gonna struggle. We're gonna, it's gonna be very uncomfortable. Because God is, his seed is in us, because we're born of him, we will not continue to sin. This is what 1 John 3, 9 says. Why? It, it's because we've, we're like a cat. A cat can get dirty, but a, can't, a cat can't enjoy being dirty. It can get thrown in the mud, it can fall into the mud, it can trip into the mud, but whenever you see a cat, you're going to see something that's trying to get clean again. Always trying to get clean again. We have already escaped the corruption of this world by his nature. That's why you just can't enjoy the things that you used to enjoy. You can't go back to it. That's not who you are. You've been born of God. You've got a new nature. Now, We need to get into our habitat of obedience. We need to agree with God about who we are. The divine nature is in us, and through it, we overcome the world. This is the victory, it goes on to say. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. God's nature in us. All right, and here's my last point. Get rid of the accountant. Romans 8, 15 to 17. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. 
The spirit of, oh, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So I want to tell you about what happened Tuesday night. Tuesday night is the best secret of this church. Tuesday night prayer meeting is amazing. You should come to Tuesday night. We meet with God on Tuesday night, or rather, maybe it's a better way to say it, God meets with us. God is just very gracious on Tuesday nights. So it was a prophetic night, and it, it ended up being all about identity. And one of our prophetic people said, what's happening right now is we, we stumble over false identities. We stumble over identities that other people gave us, that we got from our parents. Sometimes they're identities that we gave ourselves. But we, we, we try to be Christian, but we stumble over identities, false identities about our self. And so it's the very end of the night... And uh, and it was just it was just very real to me. In the final prayer, that there is an accountant that lives inside of us that decides what we deserve. And when you, when you come to Christ, you understand the gospel and you understand this isn't about what I deserve. And so we, we overcome that accountant's accusation by saying, um, I, 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 Jesus died for me. But then the accountant says this. This is how much I need. And most Christians just need, what do I really need from God? Forgiveness. I need forgiveness. And that's what I need. Well, we do need forgiveness, don't we? But folks, the gospel is about, it's not about what you think you need. Well, I need forgiveness because I need to go to heaven one day. And, and if I'm forgiven, then I'll go to heaven one day. That is absolutely true. And that does give you hope for the future. But you need more than that. It's not about what you think you need. It's about what God wants to give you. We need to fire the accountant that's in us and say, God, and this is what we did at the end of Tuesday night, that that as our worship, we said, Lord, I, I allow you to give me your definition of me. I let go of what I deserve. I I let go of what I think I need. I let go of what other people have limited me to. And I let you make me who you want me to be. See, God doesn't want to just forgive you. He wants to adopt you. He, he wants to make you a joint heir. He wants to make all of the resources of heaven, all of the glory, all of the power, all of the fruits, all of the gifts accessible to you. He wants to get, why? Because he loves you, because he's filled with grace. This is his definition of us. If we fire the accountant and allow him to define us, if we say, I am willing to give up all false identities, isn't there something in us 
that just says, I'll take this much and no more. I'll just have this minimal, minimal Christianity. Do you know why we usually do that? Because we're only thinking about us. When God wants to give you something, he's not just thinking about you. He's thinking about all the people around you. That's why he wants to give you so much that you overflow. He wants you to have access, not just for you, but so that there's fresh bread for those that come to you at midnight. All right. Oh, let me tell you how we ended. So we all, you know what, why don't we stand? Just close our eyes. Like, this is just like Tuesday night. Would you mind just closing your eyes right now? So here is your first identity if you'll let God give you what he wants to give you. Here's your first identity. He wants you to be the beloved. The highest reason you were made was not something you would give to God, but something God wants to do for you. He loves you. The Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear. Are you willing to be loved? Are you willing to let God love you? Do you know that's why Jesus came? Because God loves you. That's why he died on the cross. Jesus did it freely because he loves you. The highest identity that you have is simply this. I'm the beloved. So, I want to pray for you. So, Lord, in this world, we have to earn love. (laughs) We have to work for love. We have to be good enough for love. We have to meet other people's expectations for love. And so we get very, very twisted and tainted as to, and then we think of what you might demand of us, and it's like, how could we ever earn that love? Would you whisper to each heart right now? No, you can't earn my love. You can just receive it. You can just receive it. I have given my son so that my love can come to you. He has fulfilled all of the demands of my holiness by his death on that cross so that in him I can love you fully. So, man, if you're here today and you've been trying to earn it and you've been trying to make your own way to God um, just right now just just ask Jesus just confess to Jesus the folly of that <laughs> that I am a sinner I may, be, I may be better than my next door neighbor but that doesn't make me holy before you I own my sins Father Jesus I, I open my heart I open my life come and save me come and be be to me the heart the heart of God. And then the second identity we prayed was that of favored son, favored daughter. (laughs) Many of our families know what it is that that was the favorite child. That was the one that could do no wrong in dad's eyes, could do no wrong in mom's eyes and, and favor and We tend to think that way, that God's got like this person's, his favorite. No, 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 that's not, we're we're all his favorites, folks. 
There's so much abundance in his heart. There's so much grace in him. Do you know why Peter prayed that grace would be multiplied? Because there's an abundance for you. So Lord, I break everything over each one that has said I'm not favored. I break every identity that says I'm not special. I break, I break everything that says God doesn't like me. I break that in Jesus' name. He created you and he redeemed you. He likes you for crying out loud. And Lord, we have a whole world right now that's running away from God and just wearing it on their sleeve. We've got all these facts and all these knowledge and all this stuff without God. And Lord, in Jesus' name, we, we want to be those that press in for true knowledge. And God, we're praying for the world right now, especially this country. They need us to have more. They need us to have more of your favor and more of your love in us and flowing through us. And so, Lord, would you multiply grace in each individual right now, each of your favored sons and daughters? Would you multiply grace? We fire the accountant in Jesus' name. And then, God, we pray that you would overflow in us and through us to this world that desperately needs your grace. Please, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have some uh, ministry teams up here if you'd like more prayer. Uh, other, otherwise, we're going to worship a little, and you're, you can be dismissed whenever you want to. God bless you.